So what is the Mishnah? So the Mishnah is the first major written work of our oral teachings. It's the first major work really in Judaism after the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the um, our holy scriptures. Um, we once did a class on the Tanakh. It includes the Torah, five books of Moses, eight books of prophets, Nevi'im, and 11 books of Ketuvim, of writings of scriptures. And so together, those are our holy scriptures, um, our written word. There's only five books of written Torah, but there's another 19 books of other holy written word. Um, the first major work after that was the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah serves as the basis for much of the oral Torah as we have it today, because the Mishnah, as we'll soon see, is the basis of the Talmud, which is the most central work in Judaism. We've done a class previously about the Talmud, um, but it's without a doubt the most important work in Judaism, but it is written, as we'll see, as a commentary on the Mishnah. Now, the word Mishnah either comes from the Aramaic word shinun, which means to study. It's the study. Or it likely comes from the Hebrew word sheini. Sheini means second. Second, why? Because it was second only to the written Torah. There was the written Torah, five books of Moses, and this is second to the written Torah. In fact, it's likely that the word l'shanen, shinun, to study, um, which is a post-Mishnaic term in Hebrew or Aramaic, came from the Mishnah. In other words, it was called, the book was called Mishnah, and as a result, studying became, Mishnah became mean, to mean to study, because it was the main book of study. So what is the Mishnah? But to really understand the Mishnah, we need to have a little bit of a look at the oral Torah. In the past, we've done a class where we spoke about the oral Torah, what that is. But just in a nutshell, when God gave the Torah to Moses, a little over 3,300 years ago, he taught him a very large wealth of information that, was then, that Moses then taught to the people of Israel, then in the desert. Moses led the people for 40 years. He taught them the Torah. At the very, very end of Moses' life, God told him to write a cryptic document where the teachings of the Torah will be found. And that's what we call the written Torah, Torah Shabichta, the written Torah. That's the five books of Moses. But that document was cryptic. Moses was then given the keys to decipher the written Torah and find the laws that he was taught within the written Torah. They're not all spelled out clearly. Some are, most are not. But they can be found, alluded to in the written Torah if you know the keys of how to decipher the text. So these teachings that Moses originally taught the people, that Moses was taught by God and taught the people, were then taught orally, from, in other words, memorized, from generation to generation. In each generation, they would memorize the teachings, and it was passed on from generation to generation. Over time, these oral teachings developed. New questions were raised, had to be resolved. Existing rules were applied to new realities, new applications. 
And as a result, the body of Jewish law, the rules of the Torah, gradually expanded and developed as new cases came, uh, came up, new questions came up and that, were, that had to be addressed and, had to be, and the laws had to be applied to new scenarios. Sometimes disagreements arose among the sages, among the religious leadership, the scholars, as to how to apply the various laws. When that happened, the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Council of Judaism, would vote on the correct application of the law. They would take a vote, and then that would be how the law was applied. Also, the Sanhedrin in the earliest days of Judaism enacted many new rules over the years. Some were rules to protect the laws of the Torah, to keep us from transgressing the laws of the Torah. Some were rules for the betterment of Jewish society. But many new laws, what we call rabbinic law, were enacted by the Sanhedrin, by our Supreme Council over the years. All the applications of laws, new applications, and new laws that were essentially generated in that way, as well as new rules that were legislated by the Sanhedrin, were then added to the oral teachings, which continued to be taught from generation to generation. So over time, the original teachings of Moses gradually developed, gradually grew with new and new cases, new and new more and more new applications, new laws that were legislated by the Sanhedrin, and so over time, the oral law greatly, greatly expanded. So in the past, I mentioned we had a class on the oral Torah, which where we discussed the question of how did they manage to preserve the Torah for so long without writing it down? And we do believe that they did. Uh, let me just mention for now that um, it, we know that memories were a lot better then than they are today. Um, I think the best example we have in our own lifetimes is we used to know everybody's phone number, and now we can't remember phone numbers anymore because we don't need to. So um, we use our, the more we use our memories and the more we need them, the better we are at them. But they also use, had many, many different techniques that they used in order to ensure they didn't forget the details. But they did pass it on for orally from generation to generation. And this oral Torah was taught in the yeshivas where the children studied young adults, and full-time scholars studied advanced yeshivas where they memorized all the teachings of the oral Torah and analyzed it and then transmitted it to the next generation. Any questions? So for the first thousand years or so of Judaism after Moses, the style of study, the way this Torah was studied, was mostly following the written Torah. If they would read the written Torah from a Torah scroll, they didn't really have books like we have today. They would read the written Torah from the Torah scroll. They would analyze it. They had a tradition as to how to decipher and how to read various laws out of the oral Torah. And so as they read the oral Torah, they would then discuss or teach the laws that were relevant to the particular verse that they were reading within the written Torah. Even newly legislated laws that the Sanhedrin legislated, they usually would find a reference to it somewhere in the written Torah, a place in the written Torah that can be used as a source. It's not an actual source, they legislated it. It was legislated later, they would find something that it can connect to so that it has a place 
to study. In other words, when they studied it, it has a place to go. It was studied when they, it was studied when someone was studying this verse, they would discuss these laws or the, these legislative laws. So as a result, the way they studied was always they would study the written Torah and then explain each verse and go through the various laws connected with each verse. Over time, though, the information of the oral Torah grew as it became applied more and more scenarios um, and became harder to teach and harder to remember. Now, the written Torah is not organized by topic, really. It go, jumps from one law to another. There are many laws that are mentioned in multiple places. Shabbat is mentioned in the Torah in more than a dozen places. And there's many, many laws of Shabbat. So where do you study? So they had traditions of where to study what laws, but it wasn't really organized because the written Torah itself is not, the laws in the written Torah are not that organized. You have a law here, then the same law somewhere else. Um, it goes from one law to the next. So a little under a thousand years after the giving of the Torah, or a little over 2,300 years ago, the Jews at the time were led by this beginning of the Second Temple period. The Jews at the time were led by the, what was called the Men of the Great Assembly, the Anshik Neset Hagadola, which was a large expanded Sanhedrin, Supreme Council, led by, the, led by Ezra Hasofer, who was the president of the Sanhedrin at the time, uh, from the book of Ezra. And so among the various, and they, they made a number of important, um, they made a structural changes or adjustments to Judaism as we know it, um, developing prayer and synagogue as we know it today, um, canonizing the Tanakh, the, our Hebrew scriptures, choosing which books go in and which books stay out. But among the things that they did is they began to organize the Torah, the oral Torah by topic. So instead of the Torah just being studied and the oral Torah being studied along the written Torah, as a, so to speak, like a commentary on the written Torah, they began to study, to organize it by topic. And so now you would study a topic and they would, you would study all the laws within that topic. So this was started by the men of the Great Assembly. Over a period of about 300 years, various teachers created various systems of organization to organize the, sub the subjects in Torah, the topics in Torah for their students. So it became more and more common to teach by topic and not teach just as a commentary on the written Torah. But there wasn't a set way to organize the Torah. There were very various organizational structures out there and different teachers and different yeshivas used different organizational structures to organize the Torah. And this continued for about 300 years um, until in the days of Herod, a um, little over 2000 years ago, um, the Jewish people then were led by two great sages Shammai and Hillel. Hillel was the president of the Sanhedrin. Shammai was his deputy. And um, they, together with their students, organized the Torah into the oral Torah into six topics. Made it much more organized, structured. They organized it into six sections. 
as, and they became the standard six sections that everybody will study the oral Torah in, in these six sections. They then subdivided into various topics, about 60 topics, 60 subtopics in total. They each, Hillel and Shammai themselves, established great yeshivas in Jerusalem that became known as Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. These were yeshivas that lasted for about each for about 100 years uh, until the destruction of the Second Temple and the um, really destruction of the city of Jerusalem. What they also started doing in the days of Hillel and Shammai, they also, until then, that when the Sanhedrin would vote on a law, that would be the law. And then whatever other opinions there had been previous to the vote, the minority opinions were discounted, were not paid attention to anymore. However, starting in the days of Hillel and Shammai, they began to record also minority opinions. They found that minority opinions kept coming back after it was voted on. People would forget that there had been dissenting opinions and it had been voted on. And people would re re bring back earlier minority opinions. So they started recording also sometimes minority opinions. Also, the Sanhedrin was meeting less frequently at that point, and so not all issues were resolved. And so there were also some things, some issues where there were various opinions that weren't resolved. So this continued um, for some time. Um, and as we said, there were these two great yeshivas um, established by Hill and Shammai, known as Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. And um, each yeshiva um, had different teachings that they included in what became as their standard oral Torah that was taught to their students um, that came to study in the yeshiva, the way they ordered it, the way they worded it differently. Various other yeshivas sprung up. And though the, the topic structure remained mostly rigid since the days of Hillel and Shammai, the six general topics and the 60 or so subtopics were mostly rigid, mostly set, but the actual specific laws taught in each yeshiva varied from yeshiva to yeshiva. After the destruction of the temple, which was about the year 70 or so, um, about 1950 years ago, um, the, after the destruction of the temple, the great sage Rabbi Akiva, was the greatest sage right after the destruction of the temple, collected from the various teachings in various yeshivas. He took many, many teachings from different yeshivas and he organized them, which should be standard, which should be not. And he created what was called a kind of clean or an or structured teaching for each topic, each subtopic which teachings of the oral Torah should be kind of the standard. And it became known as Mishnat Rabbi Akiva, the teachings of Rabbi Akiva. Later, his primary students further organized and edited his teachings, each creating their own, what was called Mishnah or their own teachings. Now at this time, the oral Torah was still being passed on orally. And so young students that would come to study in yeshiva for study in school, in what was um, in um, study as children in their villages or towns uh, taught by teachers, they would memorize these various teachings as their teacher taught them. Later, the promising students would go off to yeshivas where they would be taught to memorize comprehensive um, whole sections, if not the entire body of the oral teachings as taught in their particular yeshiva.
So about 50 years after the destruction of the temple, around the year 130, to around 60 years after the destruction of the temple, around the year 130, the Jews in Israel rebelled against the Romans in a second rebellion, led by Shimon Bar Kuziba, sometimes referred to as Bar Kochba. So the Romans brutally crushed this rebellion. And at this time, many of the sages were killed in the aftermath of the rebellion, including Rabbi Akiva himself, who was very old at the time, and he was tortured to death by the Romans. And after the war, the brutal war, which many hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, after the war, the Romans banned Jewish practice in an attempt to stamp out Judaism. They also banned Torah study. This period was known as a period of Shema. Many of the sages were killed. The rest of the sages were forced to go into hiding. And this period lasted for some time, a decade or possibly even more. And it was during this period that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was born. He was born, his father was Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, who served as the president of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council of Judaism in his days. Um, at the time, um, most of the Sanhedrin, members of the Sanhedrin, surviving members, were in hiding. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel himself somehow survived this whole period. After the Shemad ended, after this period of persecution ended, and the Romans allowed Jews to go back to practicing Judaism, so Jewish life was restored. It was mostly peaceful, but it became clear to the sages at the time that the system of oral study that had been that had continued for 1,500 years from the days of Moses would not be able to survive prolonged religious persecution that they were already experiencing under Roman rule. And so Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi succeeded his father as the head of the Sanhedrin, about the year 160. And so some years later, about the year 180, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi gathered all the sages of Israel together and began, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was a great leader, um, very, very himself, very, um, very respected by the Roman emperor at the time, um, Antoninus, and um, widely respected by the Romans. Um, Jews, of course, respected him. He was also personally very wealthy and powerful. And so he was able to gather um, all the sages of Israel together to begin a monumental task of writing the first book of the oral Torah, to organize the oral Torah and put it together in a book. So this book was, go was called The Mishnah, um, and it followed the organizational structure that had been put into place by Hillel and Shaman with six general topics and about 60 individual subtopics. It was mostly based on the teachings of Rabbi Akiva, Mishnah Rabbi Akiva, the teachings that Rabbi Akiva had taught that he had organized from various yeshivas, as they were edited by his student Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir had been a student of Rabbi Akiva and actually a teacher, the main teacher of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, and one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Um, he had already died at this by this time, by 180, but he had been one of the leaders. And so it was mostly based on his teachings from his yeshiva, his mission. 
So together, this group of scholars organized and edited this huge body of teaching. It, this project took about 40 years, probably spanned multiple generations. The Mishnah was completed the, the year that we, um, that we, the Mishnah was officially completed is around the year 218 or 220. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi almost certainly died earlier before then. Uh, but at this point, 220 was, is considered the year of when the Mishnah was completed. At this point, the sages dispersed. Around 220, persecution began again, renewed Rome persecution of Jews in the land of Israel. Many of the sages fled Israel in 220 and went to Babylon. And as a result, around then Babylon, the great yeshivas of Babylon, eclipsed the yeshivas in Israel as being the center of Jewish study. While there were still schools in Israel, it became the center of Jewish study. And so that essentially ended the monumental project of compiling the mission. So that's how the mission was written. That's how it was put together. Any questions? Um, are they, do they still today add to it? No, no. Once it was finalized, it was final. So oh. around since the year 220 was final. Oh. So it wasn't, no, it wasn't, nothing was added to it after that. It was a 40 year project um, and it was continuously edited. It was probably first put together and then edited and then edited again. But once the sages of the land of Israel disbanded due to persecution around the year 220, it was wherever it was, that's where it was. Mm -hmm. And it was final. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't adjusted after that. So what exactly does the Mishnah entail? So as we mentioned earlier, the Mishnah is divided into six starim. Six, literally, starim translates as orders, six orders. But you probably we could most, for our own purpose, we could say six books or six volumes. Each book is then subdivided into multiple sections. Um, altogether, there are 63 sections, or um, they were called mesechtot. So there are 63 mesechtot, or sections of the Mishnah. What are the six orders of the Mishnah? So the first one, the first book of the Mishnah is Zra'im. Zra'im literally, literally means seeds, and it dealt with agricultural laws was mostly laws for farmers in the land of Israel. Now, the book of Zraim begins with the book of Brachot. Brachot means blessings. Sorry, the, the book of Zraim begins with the section called Brachot, which means blessings, and that's the beginning of the Mishnah, um, which discusses our prayers and blessings that we make on various occasions, um, over food and for mitzvot and as part of our prayers, um, and it discusses the mitzvah of reading the Shema, one of the um, Torah's commandments. Um, it discusses all that in great detail. The rest of the book of Zeraim discusses agricultural laws. Gifts that have to, certain um, produce that has to be left for the poor, corner of one's field, or the gleanings um, of one's harvest that have to be left for the poor. There's laws about cross-mick-breeding plants, Torah's 
rules pro prohibits us from crossbreeding plants. There's rules on how close you can plant plants together. Um, there's rules on tides that have to be separated. The teruma, which was separated and given to, from the grain, from produce and given to the Kohen. There were tithes that were separated and given to the Levite. There were tithes that were separated and had to be eaten in, um, taken and eaten in Jerusalem. Um, the first fruit that were given to the Kohen. So those, all those laws are all discussed in the book of Zerai. The second book is called Moe. Moe literally means time. And it deals with calendar-related commandments. The first two sections deal with Shabbat, which is calendar-related. It's every seven days, go through the laws of Shabbat. Um, the rest go through the various holidays. Passover, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, um, Purim, the um, you know, various fast days. Um, Chal Hamoid, the mundane days between um, of Passover and Sukkot, um, Yom Tov itself. So there are so it deals with the various Jewish Shabbat and the various Jewish holidays. The third book is called Nashim, which literally literally translates as women, and it's written to deal with family law. So it deals with family law, including laws of whom one's allowed to marry, laws, laws of marriage, laws of divorce, um, laws of um, adultery or um, unfaithful marriages. It also has, interestingly, two sections that deal with making vows, not directly related to family law, but it was thrown in as well. Um, the Torah requires us to, to keep our commitments and so laws are regarding to keeping our commitment. And then there's a section particularly talking, referring with one particular type of commitment, the commitment to be a Nazir, a Nazarite commit, a Nazarite family. The fourth section, the fourth book, sorry, is the book of, or order, is the book of Nezikin. Nezikin literally means damages, but it covers all court laws, laws for judges. It includes the laws of civil disputes, there's three sections on civil disputes. It includes laws of criminal punishment um, for various transgressing various commandments. Um, it also interestingly includes a section on the treatment of pagans and pagan beliefs. We're forbidden from worshiping idols or do anything that in any way aids or abets the worship of idols. And so there's a section on that as well called Avodah Zara. Um, there's also a section in this book um, of ethical teachings called Pirkei Avot, or Ethics of the Fathers, um, which is famous as a standalone book of Jewish ethics. Um, it also, interestingly, has a book of Idiot, um, which is really a compilation of important halachic rulings and teachings culled from all sections of the oral Torah. So that's the fourth section. The, fifth, the fourth book. The fifth book of the Mishnah is called Kadshim. Kadshim literally means sacrifices, and it covers sacrificial law and the service in the temple. It even has a section describing the layout of the temple, exactly what the temple looked like in very, very great detail. There is also a section on how to prepare kosher meat, slaughtering the kosher meat, checking it to make sure it doesn't have any 
diseases that would render it unkosher and the various laws of preparing kosher meats. The sixth section is called taharot and it covers the laws of ritual impurity, purity, ritual impurity. When the temple stood, you could only eat sacrificial meat or go into the temple when you were tahor ritually pure. There are many different types of ritual impurity and there are various ways that it transfers. Uh, we did a class on it uh, just a couple weeks ago. And so the um, book of Taharot discusses all the various laws of ritual purity, ritual impurity. So those are the six sections of the Mishnah. That was the way they were, um, that's the way it was divided. Any questions? So the mission, sorry, go ahead, Carol. Um, so did they keep track of how they interpreted laws for cases? Was there anything like case law or? Yeah, so it was as case law was developed, it was added to the body of the oral law. Oh, okay. But so just in clear. terms of the interpretation or did they say, well, in in this instance, we decided to rule this way or? Well, it would be a new law, right? This would be the law now. So they would, yeah, they would they would record that and then that would be part of the law. Now, along with the law comes the reasoning behind the law. Okay. Right? So right. along with the laws, you gotta know why. Why is the law like that? Okay. So now the Mishnah itself, although the law always has to come with a reasoning behind the law, the Mishnah itself is just really laws. It rarely includes explanations as behind the law or sources. So the scholars that studied it had to study it with analysis, with explanations, understanding. Also, we mentioned almost all laws can be found alluded to in the written Torah. When they studied the laws, they would want to know where did you find them? What was the source for this law? What was the basis for it? Where did you find it alluded to in the written Torah? The Mishnah mostly leaves all those details out. It's just plain laws. It's just the basic law. The analysis, the source, um, the why is left out. That continued to be studied orally. And the Mishnah was just the law itself. Now, the Mishnah was written with very, very precise wording. Every word was written so that it teaches us something. They measured their words. Not a single word was written unnecessarily. Many laws are not mentioned in the Mishnah explicitly, but can be deduced or deducted from the Mishnah on a close analysis. So if you analyze the wording of the Mishnah, you can deduct all sorts of other laws from the Mishnah that are not written there explicitly. And it was written in such a way where it would, the wording was so exact that you'd be able to find laws while reading the Mishnah. It was written to imply um, other laws. Now, not most of the laws that were known at the time were not actually mentioned in the Mishnah. Only the most important ones. So a big subset of the laws, particularly various opinions about different laws, were left out of the Mishnah entirely. Only the most important laws, the central laws, the crucial ones were added to the mission. It's a six volume book. 
It's a big book, but it wasn't, it only included really those, um, the most important ones. And so on the one hand, the Mishnah is an easy to read book, mostly easy to read book. Uh, it was written with a kind of very easy um, language, um, not hard to read. But on the other hand, it has to be read very carefully. You got to read it and try to figure out what the author is intended with each and every line, with each and every word. Now, a lot of that information, in other words, the analysis of what was intended in the Mishnah, the deeper understanding, the explanation behind why they said that was the law. The source in the written Torah, a lot of that can be found in post-Mishnaic works. So while the Mishnah itself is kind of the basic writing of the oral Torah, once the Mishnah was written, a lot more was written down afterwards. So the Mishnah itself is written, as we said, it's split into six sections, six books, um, six volumes, starim. Each seder is split into multiple mesechtot, multiple sections. 63 sections in total in the entire Mishnah. Then each section is subdivided into chapters. And then each chapter is subdivided into Mishnayot, or subsections, with each section being a couple lines, a paragraph or two. So that's how they would, um, that, that's how it's split up. So what happened was, after the Mishnah was completed, and possibly even before it was fully finalized, but after the Mishnah was completed, some of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's students put together books of laws that were not mentioned in the Mishnah. As we mentioned, the majority of laws that were known at the time were not actually mentioned explicitly in the Mishnah. So there were a lot of laws left out. All the laws that were left out of the Mishnah are called Brita. Brita means, is Aramaic for outside, left out of the Mishnah. All the laws left out of the Mishnah, they're still laws, and so they're referred to as Brita. And so there were many books of Brita written in the generation, in the period right after the compilation of the Mishnah. A number of Rabbi Huda Nasi students wrote various books of Brita. Some survived, some didn't. We have one comprehensive such book still today called Tosefta. Tosefta literally means additions. And the Tosefta was written by Rabbi Yoshia, one of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's students. And it basically, it follows the same 63, six volumes, 63 sections as the Mishnah, except it's much more expanded. We will have the laws of the Mishnah, but with much, much, much more detail. It's maybe three or four times the size of the Mishnah, much, much larger. So we have brightness over on that cover the entire Mishnah, uh, the Tosefta covers the entire Mishnah, and it's really an expanded Mishnah, gives us much, much more detail. Tosefta is one that survived, but there were others that were written, compiled at the time. Now, the Mishnah, and even the Brightas that were written not long after the Mishnah was written, um, were mostly laws, straight laws. It didn't really include the analysis. It didn't include the explanation. 
the sources. It didn't include the, um, the, the how to find it in the written Torah. So the analysis of the Mishnah, the understanding of the laws, continued to be studied orally for multiple generations. And there was a term for analysis. The term for analysis was either called Gemara or Talmud. Those were two interchangeable, both used terms for the analysis of the Mishnah or the Bright of the laws. So after about 200 years after the Mishnah was written, the analysis of the Mishnah as studied in the land of Israel. And at the time, Israel's yeshivas weren't that large um, because there was a lot of road persecution. Um, but about 150 or 200 years or so after the, writing of the, after the writing of the Mishnah, the analysis of laws as found in the, uh, as taught in the land of Israel were put together in what became known as Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. No, the Jerusalem Talmud was not actually written in Jerusalem. Jews weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem at the time. It was written in Tiberias, but it was written about 200 years or so, about the year 400 or so. About 100 years later, um, around the year 500, um, the analysis that had been studied in Babylon over the past 300 years um, which Babylon by this time had become the main center of Jewish learning, the greatest yeshivas were in Babylon, were put, were put together, the analysis of the Mishnah, and this was called the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud Bavli. Now, both of these were written as a running commentary on the Mishnah. So there you would have the Mishnah, and then you would have the Talmud, the analysis of that Mishnah. So the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud Bavli, um, was a massive work of analysis and commentary on the Mishnah. Um, and it is really the most comprehensive work of our oral Torah that we have. And it serves as the basis of all Jewish law today. We did a class about a year ago on the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Any questions? So today, while the Talmud is really the main body of Jewish teachings, it's in-depth analysis, but we still study the Mishnah, not only as part of the study of Talmud, because the Mishnah is included in the Talmud, but also we study the Mishnah on its own um, as the basis of Jewish teachings, of our oral teachings. The Mishnah is really the foundational work of our oral Torah, of our oral teachings as we have it today. Now, because it's just law and not in-depth analysis, and it's written in a fairly easy to read uh, manner, uh, it's a lot easier to study than to study Talmud. And so we usually start teaching Mishnah to children at a young age in elementary school, um, usually third grade or so, second, third grade, they start studying Mishnah. Um, they already start studying. It's not that difficult in Hebrew, and it's written in Hebrew, and um, it's somewhat easier to read than Talmud. Talmud, we only study, begin later, usually around middle school age, uh, when the, the kids, children's minds are developed enough to be able to study. So we do study Mishnah, teach it to the children. We study it ourselves also. Today, you could buy a set of Mishnah or individual books or sections of Mishnah, 
um, today on their own, separate from the Talmud. Um, the Mishnah has all been translated into English. There are today multiple translations available. And uh, it's widely available and easy to study. And so while the studying Talmud, and I encourage people to study Talmud as well, is quite an undertaking. It's a difficult study. Mishnah is a fairly easy study. And anyone can do it. Um, today, you can find audio classes, video classes on the Mishnah online. You can easily purchase translations um, into English of the Mishnah. I'm sure you can get them on Amazon. There are many, many translations available. Um, so today, the Mishnah is something that can be studied and is studied extensively. Um, we have a tradition in particular that the word Mishnah has the same letters as the Hebrew word neshama, soul. And so the Mishnah has a special power to impact the soul. And therefore, when we lose a loved one, it's a tradition to study Mishnah in memory of our loved one. We even what we do is we study chapters or sections in the Mishnah that begin with the same letter as the person's name. So somebody who has a name, Sarah, we would do a chapter or a section that starts with the letter Sin, and then the letter Reish, and then the letter Hey, um, Mishnahs that connect to their soul. And so the studying Mishnah connects to a person's soul. So we do it after someone's passing, but it's something that we study in general and um, should be studied and can be studied by anyone. We currently here don't have any classes in the Mishnah, but maybe we should start one. Uh, but it was common in many, you know, well, most communities throughout history always had there were Talmud classes, but there were also Mishnah classes, which were much easier. Um, they much much easier to read than the Talmud, uh, much easier to follow. And uh, definitely something that if you want to study the oral Torah from the very beginning, um, the way to start is by studying Mishnah. That's the way to begin the, the teachings of the oral Torah. So I would encourage if you haven't studied Mishnah yet, definitely start now. Now's the time to do it. We're almost at Shavuot, which is the holiday of the giving of the Torah, time to increase in Torah study to study the Mishnah and um, continue our studies in general.